the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom is still here with me. Tom, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jason. Trey Price is still here with us. If you're doing a plant pathology binge on the podcast, this would be the third episode that we've had Trey on this year. If you haven't listened to the other ones, Trey made a trip to Stoneville in the spring, and we sat down and recorded uh, three episodes. Now we've done one with corn diseases, and we did one with soybean taproot decline. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. Okay. I really wish I'd circled back to that name when we did that episode. It's kind of a tragedy. Then today we're going to talk about Cercospora leaf blight. Did I do? Did I just get two soybean disease names correct? You did. Can you tell us what the genus and species is of the organisms that cause Cercospora leaf blight? No. Why would I need to do that? Okay. Darn it. I don't have anything to gain by doing that. Sure you do. It's common common textbook knowledge for a video game night. I'm sorry. Trivia night. On the, Trivia night, on not the, video games. Yes. On the off chance that I end up on Jeopardy, I would sure. suspect that one of the answers is not going to be the genus and species for soybean taproot decline. Well, why wouldn't it be? Why would it be? Well, it's nice to have you here again, Trey, as usual. It's not really again. And nice to still be here. Nice to have you it's great that you stayed for a while with us so that we could record a few episodes, and we're definitely going to talk about something that's near and dear to your heart as a plant pathologist because you did your dissertation work on Cercospora leaf blight. So definitely in this part of the world, I consider you the expert on that particular disease. God help us. How would you rate your Mexican food experience in on this side of the river, Trey, compared with your Mexican food experience from home? About the same, you know, six or so. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. That's a pretty strong response. Yeah, I mean. I, mean, I could have been sitting in Winsboro just then. Right, or <laughs> Indianola, yeah. or Clarksdale. The salsa was good, though. Yeah, they, they make good salsa. It was fantastic. Had a good zing to it. So no off-the-wall odd podcast question? You're not going to circle back to one? It was the next thing that I was going to say. So you're going to do it now? Cats or dogs? Mm, dogs. Okay. We have both in my family. Wow. We don't do cats. We had both for a while. Now we just have a dog. Cat's low maintenance. He sleeps all day and he goes out all night. My daughter mentioned a cat and I just ignored her. None of the animals in my house were invited by me. I'll put it that way. <laughs> we had bad luck with cats. So I feel, I feel like that's coming for me too. I mean, we, we have a dog that was my dog and I feel like when it comes time for a replacement that we're not going to have daddy's kind of dog. Probably not. If, we, if it was up to mama, we wouldn't have a dog. That's a whole other story. Tom has a dog. We do have a dog. Tom's dog cost Tom a lot of money. Boy, your oh, dog no, wrecked, wrecked the bike. That <clears throat> well, it wasn't, wasn't so much, yeah, but I, I really blame the whole situation on the neighbor's dog. Um, the, the neighbor that... Could very well be listening to the podcast. Likely not, but likely it not. Could happen. I, I wish my neighbors would not let their dogs out of their houses unless it was either a on a leash or b in their backyard, which is fenced. For a couple of reasons: one, your dog dragged my wife off the bike; she broke her leg. And for two, your dog craps in my yard. <laughs> so that's just 
That's uh, uh, proverbial. It's kind of how I feel about no, it because usually, I mean, I think everybody listening to this program right now understands that mild frustration that your neighbor's dog craps in your yard and inevitably you will step in it because it's your yard. My dog's crap in my dad's yard. He lives right next door to me and then uh, his coming crap in my yard. So it mine evens go, out. Mine goes out in the pecan orchard. Good dog. Well, we have proceeded into the gutter. <laughs> 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 with this particular <laughs> since it's right after lunch why don't y'all get to it and i'll just kind of kick back over here and catch a little nap y'all wake me up when you want me to hit stop no we're not going to wake you up you won't fall asleep we had decided that one of the potentially important topics and i would say it's it's definitely becoming more important in the mississippi soybean production system and it has been really important in louisiana for several years is cercospora leaf blight which i think is a headache that just about everybody that grows soybeans deals with and that's something that i know trey has done the bulk of the research in the mid-southern united states as it relates to fungicide efficacy and fungicide resistance then within that particular organism and that is why we have trey here it's an annual issue in the state uh, last year in the northeast part of the state, it was uh, really severe. I, I got some really nice data in my trials at Macon Ridge. And if you go to the central part of the state, the other diseases, there was uh, aerial blight and, and soybean rust were doing the heavy lifting in those plots. But Cercospora leaf blight's been a problem, particularly since uh, this effectiveness of the strobilian fungicides. Essentially, just they just quit working on the, on the disease. Uh, you, you can see that. And we've got... I'm going on 25 years of data, and you can go all the way back to the introduction of the of the strobilian fungicides, and they were excellent on Cercospora leaf blight when they were first introduced, but it didn't take long for that pathogen complex to develop resistance to that mode of action. Um, later on, though, you know, in recent years, the industry's uh, come out with some innovations with SDHI materials and some newer generation triazoles that are, are showing some consistent efficacy on Cercospora leaf blight, which is always encouraging when you can you can a- apply those treatments and then come back later when it's time to rate, and you can see, the, you know, no doubt visual differences in, in disease severity and, and yield preservation, too, whenever we have uh, enough, you know, enough disease severity there. Well, and you certainly hit on something there that I think is one of the bigger questions and something that I think is really important, which is yield preservation. Because oftentimes we get asked as plant pathologists, what kind of yield loss can we associate with with Cercospora blight? How damaging can that particular one disease be? 20% I've seen in my trials based on based on some data from the past couple of years. That, I'd say that's probably the tops. Um, usually probably less than that. I'd say anywhere from 5 to 10%. Ray Schneider has some great pictures from the research station. Uh, in Baton Rouge, one year where the Cercospora blight was so bad, it just completely defoliated an ent- entire fields down there on a research station. So, the potential's there for for some pretty devastating uh, yield losses. But that, on average, I'd say ranges anywhere from zero to twenty percent, depending on severity in a given year. Well, and I'd say in the first couple of years of my career here at Mississippi State, I had gone down and visited Boyd Paget, and Boyd always impressed upon me how severe Cercospora blight could be. And even seeing it in just some of those fields, that's something that I was really keenly aware of as a plant pathologist in Louisiana. It looked like it definitely was more severe than what it was on our side of the river. 
But I really think in the last five to six years, I think the severity of Cercosporum blight in Mississippi has also picked up. And I think that's probably related to the development or the additional development of fungicide resistance. But I also think there are definitely some differences between some of the, the varieties that are commercially available. And that's something I think we try to look at when we look at variety trial locations and try to make those comparisons to get farmers good information as to how each of those varieties respond. Sure, yeah, I, I, I rate multiple variety trials just like you do every year, and Cercosporum blight's there every year. The problem that we've run into over the years is um, you may have a rating for a variety that that shows like, you know, looks, looks like the variety's resistant in one location, but then you can have the same variety in a different location in the state and it looks like it's susceptible. So, and I think that's probably has a lot to do with the, the pathogen populations in given locations. Uh, there's at least three different species of fungi that are involved in Louisiana. In Argentina, there are four, um, at least. So it's kind of a pathogen complex. There's a lot of genetic diversity in that pathogen population. It's been very difficult in, in regular OVT, OVT trials to to find consistent consistent ratings. Well, and I know we struggle with, it'd be nice if you could look at each of those locations multiple times. And given the number of crops that you and I deal with and, and the overall needs of a plant pathologist right now in multiple crops with some pretty major disease issues, it's really difficult to get more than one evaluation at most of those locations, which... It is. And it, with, with Stracosper blight, it's, it's, sometimes it can be challenging to time it right because typically you won't see you won't see sarcosper blight symptoms until after r5 and it's usually better to rate post r6 you know sometime between r6 and r6 and a half before the beans start cutting out that's ideal time to rate it and catching all those locations at that right at that growth stage is, is a challenge especially for you you rate a lot more variety trials than i do well, and y'all down there at LSU were definitely instrumental in, in developing some of those more, I would say, consistent and probably logical evaluation systems that really focus on two main symptoms that are expressed. Could you talk about that a little bit? There's a lot of different symptoms associated with, with Cercosper blight, but the, the main one is the uh, purpling or bronzing of the leaves and in the, in the top part of the canopy you can also have the blight where you have necrosis on the leaves. Also, the petioles get stained purple. And the same organisms cause purple seed stain. With, with a lot of scales, I think the simpler, you, the simpler you are, the better off you are. When we got involved looking for sources of resistance to Cercosper blight in the Mid-South Soybean Board and United Soybean Board project, looking at those plant introductions, we way overcomplicated it for the first couple of years because we were looking at all those different symptom types. Instead of taking the disease as a whole, we broke, and eventually we ended up breaking that rating scale down to zero to six severity scale based on what the disease does. And it defoliates starting in the top and going down. So you have a certain degree of defoliation. When you first see Cercosper blight, you'll have a certain degree of discoloration in the top. And then as it progresses, that defoliation goes from the top down. And the other thing is, you know, incidence. You know, we broke incidence down into four categories based on 0 to 25, 25, 50, 50 to 75, and so on. So just a simple two numbers per plot. And using that simplified rating scale, we were able to actually identify some sources and some germplasm sources that were resistant, showing resistance to Cercosper leaf blight. 
and hopefully you know the breeders have picked up on some of that material already so hopefully some of that material will end up in the commercial pipeline at some point um and we'll have resistant you know varieties out there that are consistently resistant to cercospora blight for the mid-south yeah i think it's important for our listeners to know we we've had a a large cercospora blight project I, i think this year's year six if i'm not mistaken it is and and that's something that I don't think, at least I know in Mississippi, it's not something I've really talked a lot about at meetings. But that project was pretty instrumental, working with breeders and getting some new germplasm as it would relate to resistance to this particular pathogen and disease complex that you get with each of those organisms that's in there. And that initial scale, as you, as you said, was really complex. Looked at petioles and leaves and bronzing and blighting. It used to take hours to go through something on the order of about 100 plots. And then when you broke that scale down to that, that system was, was much more rapid. You could roll through there in less than an hour, pretty much. And that's been multiple locations in multiple states and multiple people involved. And, and I really think the, the outcomes from that are pretty pretty important in that a new evaluation strategy, some germplasm for breeders to work with, and then the one additional portion that I think we really did some work on in the last two to three years was to collect isolates of the organism that causes that disease and to screen those then to determine how much fungicide resistance, excuse me, to screen Don't those. worry, I'll just edit yeah. that out. And that's that's not going to be a problem at all because you were just talking and then coughed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that isolate collection that, that's that's down in Baton Rouge is stored in multiple locations, and it, if you, it's it's got to be on the order of somewhere between one and two thousand isolates for multiple years right now. And if you if you amass an isolate collection like that, you can do, you can do a lot of different things with it. You can character characterize it genetically. And, and, you know, Tom mentioned fungicide resistance. Well, you can look at fungicide resistance on multiple modes of action. There's going to be a lot of graduate student projects that come out of that collection in the future if they're not ongoing already. One of the points I, I wanted to make and I alluded to earlier is you, we don't know what ratio of each species are in a, in a given location, and we don't know how those will respond to fungicide applications. We don't know, say, a particular farm we don't know if you have fungicide resistance on that farm or not. So it makes managing cercospora blight pretty pretty difficult. If you if I'm looking at a field, what am I seeing that makes that tips me off that I'm looking at cercospora that's gonna cue me in to call one of y'all and and step me on through the identification of the symptoms. Uh, the first thing you'll notice is are is a leathery appearance in the upper part of the canopy. On the, on the very top leaves, and then after that, I generally you'll, on some varieties you'll you'll see uh, uh, lesions on petioles. If you have some major defoliation, of course, that's an eye catcher too. But the biggest thing is that leathery appearance of leaves, and then later kind of turn purple, and also the blighting on those leaves. In my neck of the woods, the the fungi that are involved will sporulate profusely on those leaves, and that and that results in like an ashy gray appearance on those leaves. What do you look for, Tom? That's exactly what I look for. Those leathery appearing leaves, any discoloration in that upper canopy that tends to be kind of a, a light orange in some cases to almost a maroon. And the hard part is is that almost every variety has a different coloration. 
Mm-hmm. You can almost break it down to a scale in and of itself that ranges from light orange to brown to maroon. And in some cases, depending on the light, it's almost black. It's such a dark purple discoloration on those leaves. And then you'll get the same discoloration on pods, petioles, and the main stem as well. Uh, and the hard part there is, and I think that's usually when we get called, is if I'm seeing these symptoms, should I make a fungicide application at this point? Is that going to be uh, an effective application timing strategy to do that time on symptom expression? It's usually too late by the time the symptoms come out. Right. Biologically, there's a toxin associated with that organism that in a lot of instances, most researchers think that that toxin is expressing that discoloration in the leaves, which adds a tremendous amount of confusion then when you're talking about it from a management standpoint with a fungicide. We yeah. are full of good news. <laughs> the fungi that cross across relief plot, they, they, uh, they live in the plants as endophytes. You know, they don't cause any damage or anything up into... It seems like once you hit get into those into the R five plus stages, it kind of the switch flips. Something happens in the plant, or something something triggers that pathogen to start causing those symptoms in the plants. What can you confuse it with, or what other diseases might have similar symptoms? Target or, spot they, for sure. Okay. Target spot for sure. You you can also, if I'm not mistaken, that kudzu bug will feed on petioles and also produce something that's very similar to the lesions associated with Cercospora blight. So if there's a heavy infestation of kudzu bugs at that location, you can confuse the injury associated with them on those petioles and stems with Cercospora blight as well. Uh, you know, as far as management goes, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the newer fungicides on the market are, are showing some consistency in field trials, and those are the ones containing SDHIs and, and triazoles. Um, the typical timing is somewhere between R3 and R5. Years ago in, in South Louisiana, they saw some efficacy with R1 applications, and I, I tried to replicate that at, uh, in, in central and northeast Louisiana, and I couldn't, I, you know, I tried R1 timings, and they never were any, they weren't as good as they as they mentioned in those field trials. But uh, typically the R3, R5 timing, products like Miravis Top, uh, Revitec, Lucento, Preaxer, Triver Pro, those that are that have the SDHIs in them, are tend tend to be the best. Y'all are not cranking out any better fungicide names than we have on herbicide names. Those are random jumbles of letters. Yeah, no, and they're going to become even more confusing. It gets hard to keep up with them too. You got a Miravis Ace, and you got a Miravis Top, and right. And then there's a Miravis Neo. Miravis Neo. Now they have been suggesting that they're planning on marketing those in different parts of the country, at least the Miravis Neo and the Miravis Top. Miravis Ace, though, is the one that is wheat wheat predominantly. A whole different topic of conversation, but that's a real frustration for us, too, in the herbicide world, because those names are just, they don't stick in your brain, you know? They're not words. No. I get get really frustrated with it, and then have a conversation about it. Then you have to explain why. That name is like it is, and you don't know why that name is like it is. It's just a a jumble of letters that makes something resembling a word. But yeah, yeah I, I have a cheat sheet rumbling around my desk because it's about the only way that I can keep track of some of them right now. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's difficult to keep up with the actives. And then you have generics out there, and you have to go dig and figure out what's in the generics or 
you know, somebody's own brand or mixture or whatever. It's a, it's a challenge keeping up every year for it sure. It was really easy when it was just either headline or quadrus and the rate structure was a six ounces because now the rate structure is completely different with all of those products that he just mentioned. And it's all based on percent active ingredient within each formulation. There's some fungicides that are active with the SDHIs. Y'all mentioned that there's some difference in susceptibility among the varieties that we grow. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd, I'd say if you're looking at OVT ratings, I would I would choose the set of ratings that's closest to your farm because more than likely that the that's going to mimic the the environmental conditions and, and maybe the the uh, content of that pathogen population in your given area. So you might could expect the same response on your farm as you do in that in that closest OVT. Are there other management tactics that we can utilize? Just general stuff, Tom addressing the disease triangle. Ow! Disease pyramid. Yes. You got me. Got him! Took a while. Took a few months, but I got him. Addressing the disease pyramid. And I'm thinking like, you know, crop rotation, that those types of, you know, agronomic management. Does any of that influence at all? In any plant pathology-based management system, crop rotation is extremely effective because that helps break down the residue whereby that organism could survive between seasons or across several years. Yeah, we, crop rotation absolutely is good because, again, he said that the pathogen can survive on that debris. Also, you need to keep in mind that the the predominant uh, species in that is Cercospora flagellaris. There's your Latin word again. That pathogen is, uh, is pathogenic to multiple uh, species of plants. We've, ocu- we've isolated it from pokeweed, uh, cotton, mulberry trees. I've got two mul- I've got a bunch of mulberry trees in my front yard, and you can see whenever those trees finish their reproductive stages, their leaves look just like Cercospora blight on soybean. So that's another thing to keep in mind is we've got these we've got these alternative hosts. We've got we have the pathogen on that debris. The organisms are just seem to be just ubiquitous in the in the production systems. What are we missing? I'd say just general tillage to help break down residue, at least in that particular crop system. Although with that said, I've been to some locations before that have never had soybean on them, and, and no joke, they had some of the worst Cercospora blight I've ever seen. They've been taken out of CRP and put into soybean production and had horrendous Cercospora blight. Yeah, that organism seed-borne. Well, with that, we'd certainly like to thank Trey for coming up here again. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to come up and chat. We really appreciate you coming up, taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and discuss some of these plant disease issues with us. And with that, as always, we would like to thank our regular listeners. We really appreciate the input to this point in the year, and this is certainly something we'll continue to bring you. Uh, Hot topic content as well as things that occur throughout the regular growing season. And with that in mind, if you need us for one-on-one question and answer, feel free to track us down. Thank you, man. Thank you all. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.